It's Monday, January 31st. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier, and you are listening to episode 211. On today's show, we're going to be talking about progressive council member Mike Bonin, who has announced that he won't be seeking re-election, reactionary billionaire Rick Caruso, who is coming close to announcing that he will run for mayor. Encampment sweeps in Inglewood in advance of the Super Bowl street vendor protests in Santa Monica, and the end of oil drilling at some point in Los Angeles. So to talk with me about all of those things, and maybe even a little bit more, I have co-host Alyssa Walker. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Scott. Good morning. This is a mo- We're recording this in the morning. I don't know why. I it's going to be, people are going to be listening to it in the morning too. And also as guest host today, we have podcaster extraordinaire, journalist, comedian, author, Jamie Loftus. Thank you, Jamie, for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Also in the morning. We did it. <laughs> we woke up. We, we all made we it, it to uh, the appointed location, which is as always, Zoom. Um, Jamie, you're remote from the wilderness. Somewhere, I mean, when you were describing where you I'm, were, it sounded like the set of The Road to, like you were sorting among the <laughs> scrap heap of civilization for a coffee maker. I, w- I was, yeah, kind of like scavenging around this morning. I hope that, yeah, my friend's getting married, but I was able to scavenge three quarters of one cup of coffee, a banana, one beer and three granola bars. And that was what I was able to collect this morning. So real, real survival of the fittest energy over here. You're in like a yellow jackets themed wedding. Is that where you are? That sounds (laughs) cool. Yeah. Only one of us is going to leave. Is that what happens on that show? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm so glad that you made it. Multiple people, but I can't talk. (laughs) I'm so so glad that you made it. I have not watched yellow jackets either. So references are flying over my head right now. Uh, <laughs> as usual, I want to start us off with some upcoming things to know for our listeners before we get into the news. Um, this is actually a really big week for us at LA Podcast. Wednesday, we have the first episode of 30 Mile Zone that we are putting out on its very own feed. As a reminder, that's our LA Movie Movie Club show, which um, I love doing. And my co-host, Allison Herman, and I this week are going to be talking about the 2013 movie Afternoon Delight, starring Katherine Hahn and Juno Temple. Sophia Benoit is our guest for that episode. It's really fun, and I'm very excited to get it out to everyone. Um, so make sure that you go find that on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, subscribe to it, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about LA movies. Also on Wednesday... In this feed, the one you're listening to right now, we have a really exciting full-length interview that's going to drop. Alyssa and I just spoke with reporter Justin Klosko, who has been covering the LADWP billing scandal, uh, well, since its inception, which was about 10 years ago, if you can believe that. We've been getting a ton of questions about this case from listeners. Um, More and more information, obviously, is coming out. People are being arrested. People are pleading guilty. Um, So people reasonably have a lot of questions about what's happening and how it affects what's going to happen in LA's upcoming mayoral race. Justin was kind enough to spend a full hour talking with us about that. 
gave us all of the ins and outs. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ins, there's a lot of outs. And, uh, and there's, I mean, it was just helpful for me. I feel like I didn't even fully understand what was going on. And it was so, so much worse than I thought it was. <laughs> oh, great. That was what I was hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm so befuddled by this case that I I just keep slipping into Big Lebowski references just without even thinking about it. And uh it's you can hard hear not all to. of this. It needs to be made into a movie. <laughs> you can uh yeah, PT Anderson um if you're out there. <laughs> um you can hear all of that on on Wednesday, and we hope that you will give it a listen because uh, Justin has done a phenomenal job covering that story, and we want to help people understand it to the greatest extent possible. We're able to do all of this, it should be said, with the help of our Sepulveda Pass holders. The Sepulveda Pass is what we call our Patreon subscription program, and everyone who is a member is helping keep this show going, keep it free, keep it ad-free, you name it, you're helping us do it. And we're so grateful to you. If you can, if you're able, you can support us by going to thelapod.com and clicking the support us link or by going to patreon.com slash lapodcast. Subscriptions start at just $5 a month or $50 a year if you're so inclined. Thank you to David, Sasha, and Michael for signing up recently. And if you subscribe, you get access to our Discord server where we're going to do fun things like having regular chats, um, something I'm calling Cafe Topic Hall, um, which is really a joke that you will (laughs) only get if you live in Silver Lake. And that's fine with me, as well as fun things like discounts on (laughs) merchandise. Having said all that, um, I think we can finally get into the news for the week and I can sort of stop talking at this point. Jamie, you're our guest. Do you want to start with uh, your LA story for this past week? Do you have one that you want to share with our listeners? I do. Uh, okay, so this is this is a, a pretty gentle story of a uh, woman and sidewalk ecosystem. Um, where okay, so I I live in um, Silver Lake Echo Park area. I think we live pretty close to each other, Scott. And so, Cafe Topical. I love it. Um, (laughs) I was, I was, so there's a lot of, um, particularly in, on my block, there's a lot of skunks because, um, I have a very sweet neighbor who does, um, catch neuter release with, with local cats. And so there's food around. So there's skunks around. So there's this thriving ecosystem in my driveway, um, which normally is fine. It's nice for my cat because the stray cats will come up to our window. They'll chat. They'll gossip. It's nice. Um, but at night, the problem is, so I, I don't drive. I, I'm a proud bus um, bus user. So I've been, you know, withdrawing $1.75 at a time at 7-Eleven for the past couple of weeks <laughs> and hating As every single second of it. Now, yeah. I did not miss it. And, uh, but you know, I've been eating a lot of single granola bars as a result. Um, but I got home the other night at like 1030 at night. And as is the case, sometimes there was a skunk in the driveway, which directly blocks me from getting into my house. This is a face-off that has been happening for years now. (laughs) Um, and it's never ended well for me. It's always (laughs) been the same skunk. I'm relatively sure. Uh, 
and he just doesn't like me. And I, you know, I have to accept that. Uh, there was one time when uh, my my partner was held hostage in his car for three hours by the skunk who just planted next to the Subaru while oh he had God. two ice cream cones in his hand. And we were just calling each other and he was just like, <laughs> he, he had to eat both of the ice cream cones because he couldn't get out of the car. And I was watching from the house, watching him eat the ice cream cone. It was a nightmare. The skunk has really had it in for us for, for years. And so I was in a standstill with the skunk at 1030 at night uh, this past Thursday. And I just, I don't know, something in me broke because I was like, this could last for hours. It's already so late. I don't know where else I can go. And so I just started crying <laughs> in front of the skunk. I, in I front of the skunk. Well. Uh, <laughs> I was going to no ask like at what point so... you admit defeat, but it sounds like you've reached that. <laughs> And you're all out of single granola bars because you already ate. You already ate it on the bus. I did. I had. I genuinely had eaten on the bus, and so I just was crying in front of the skunk. And uh, this week, for the first time ever, I've lived there for two years. Uh, the skunk took pity on me and couldn't stand the sight of it, and turned around and went back under the house. And I got to go. It. It took all of three minutes and. Um, now I I want to think that we have some kind of understanding, um, or maybe he could just smell that I'd been to Olive Garden earlier that night, and I smell <laughs> I don't know, but either way, um, I I don't feel like I won. I feel like we we've reached a truce. So uh, that's my it, story for the week. It, it sounds a little bit like I mean you've done a lot of reporting on like the manosphere and stuff and it sounds kind of like the skunk is your alpha now <laughs> i think he might have even leveled up to sigma which is like a whole other level of masculinity that had not been previously accessed before someone made it up two years ago <laughs> basically, basically the skunk is actually the the resident of your home at this point and you're just subletting I think I'm dating the skunk. <laughs> Alyssa, do you have an LA story you want to share? I guess mine is just like also wildlife related, but not nearly as exciting or interesting. But did you notice that this week was like when spring started to feel like it like kicked in a little few weeks early? I don't know. We had this nice like stretch of sunny and 70 days and just like... Mm -hmm. I usually I this time of year, I'm like going to a lot of conferences and leaving LA. It's like the conference time, right? And then you, you leave and you come back and, and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here instead of, you know, the, the barren, uh, frigid uh, midsection of the country. Um, but just like the smells when you're walking around, the birds seem to be like back in action. Not like they're ever not, but it was just, uh, and the seasonal allergies are also um, returning for, for certain people. <laughs> but just walking around this week, I was getting like major spring fever um, and, and hay fever, I guess they come together. But um, just to, to like inhale um, the, the beauty of Los Angeles as, as broken as it is, um, 
I just was that little person putting on my sundress and kind of like tiptoeing through the sidewalks of my neighborhood um, this weekend and happy to be here. Small pleasures. Oh, Ida. Ida has something to say about that. <laughs> what about you, Scott? Uh, we had kind of like a little spirit spring, um, which is, I think, gone at this point. Yeah. I always, um, I had, it's been such a long time since I spent the winter in some place that was not LA or Arizona that I like, I, I did live in the DC area for a while when I was young, you know, when I was a kid. And, um, so like I have the knowledge of what winter is actually like, I mean, still, it's not like, you know the Boston area or St. Louis area where you two are are used to spending time. But yeah, that's right. I'm like, I, I always see those sorts of like stories about, like you said, the frozen middle part of the country where it's like, I don't know, two thirds of the country is the same temperature as the moon right now or whatever, whatever they end up saying. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's what it sounds like to me. So when we get our little early springs, I just that. think of it as like, normal. I just I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, like LA has like 16 seasons or whatever and they're all like two or three weeks long. <laughs> so um, uh, I, love <laughs> I like that. that. Dividing them up into smaller ones. Yeah. Smaller <laughs> seasons. Uh my LA story from this week actually comes from last weekend, uh like a, a week ago Sunday. Actually, as you're listening to this, you already know, and we don't know yet because it's Saturday morning when we're recording this, whether or not the Rams are going to the Super Bowl, uh, which is a thing that I forgot was happening. I've kind of become untethered from the uh, the yearly calendar because it's COVID and I don't leave home. But one of the few things that I do is go on walks with my baby, Ida, and my partner, Sarah, we were doing that last Sunday and we were just like walking through our neighborhood and everywhere that we went, like on every block, people were just screaming and shouting and that's the best. So yes. happy. Um, and I was like, what is going on? I was I was like, um, obviously <laughs> I was like, okay, this is some sport. What sport is it? Not baseball. Uh, is it basketball? And Sarah was like, no, it's definitely football. And I was like, oh yeah, football's still happening. Um, and so we got home and... How did she know? How do you... <laughs> I don't know how... How do you distinguish a football from a basketball wolf? <laughs> she, um, <laughs> the way that she knew is because she's from the Bay Area. And so her friends from childhood and her family friends are all like really excited about the 49ers. Um, so she knew that football was still a thing that was happening. Uh, for me, I'm just uh, a total hermit. And those those types of things don't even make it to my door. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but when we got home, yeah, we like we were like, oh, wow. Like um, the Rams, well, I was like, oh, wow. That's my reaction. Sarah doesn't care. I was like, the Rams, you know, they, they beat Tom Brady, our favorite uh, Brentwood Trump supporter. Um, and they, um, no team affiliation, just 
I only identify the team that way. I think. I don't even on, think he. Like, I don't even think he had a team. I think it was twelve on one, and he was just out there in a mega hat. He's out there, <laughs> unmasked, unvaccinated, spewing props. So anyway, we we sent a bunch of people out there to to tackle him in his mega hat, and um, and that's what everyone in LA was cheering about. And so now um, wow. it's San Francisco and LA playing for the Super Bowl, which is in L.A. Um, they're playing for the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, which is in L.A. Um, but yeah, it was just really nice walking through the neighborhood and sort of hearing people just celebrating. We've kind of got a lot of that through the pandemic since we have won so many championships during the last year and a half. But um, Wait, so... But last year they played... Didn't the Tampa Bay... It was They were in their own home stadium last year in the Super Bowl and now it could happen again? Like, what are the chances of that? That is just absolutely nuts. Uh, Like, that would happen two years in a row. Does it happen a lot? It seems unlikely. I'm asking the wrong person. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, if you want, like, uh, the math answer, it's 32 squared, which is, I just calculated it, (laughs) one one in 1,024 is the odds of that happening two years in a row. (laughs) That's pretty wow. amazing. I mean, that would be that would be something, huh? <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so let's um, talk about the news, which is a bit of a calm down. I apologize. I've actually been hearing from a lot of <laughs> my friends lately. They're like, man, the show is so depressing. And I'm like, you know what? There's a bright spot at the end of this episode, actually. There's a positive thing at the end. Well, what I try and focus on... Maybe maybe I'm not highlighting it, but what I try and focus on is like there are a lot of ways in which like especially more and more I think these days people power is evident in some of even the worst stories that we have coming out of LA. And that's kind of encouraging. Yes. Um, Yes. Mm -hmm. They're not always like clear-cut victories because there are a lot of very powerful people and forces in this city. Um, But there's uh, there's a lot of fight in people. So I, I like that. Um, there's not a lot of giving up. But we want to talk this week about what's going on in electoral politics because we had two very important stories developing. Uh, one of which, I mean, if you were listening to our show last week, we just talked about the failure of the recall effort against council member Mike Bonin of the 11th district, which is LA's west side from Playa del Rey up to Pacific Palisades. Um, And that was a big, that was actually a big win for progressive forces in the city because that effort had gathered 40,000 signatures, a huge number and way more than they needed to qualify for the ballot. But when the city clerk's office went through the signatures one by one, they found that they uh, actually had a large number, one in three signatures that came from outside of the district or not from registered voters. So that effort failed. And that was a really big victory. However, this week, Mike Bonin surprised Los Angeles by announcing that he would not campaign or run for a third and final term on the powerful city council. Bonin, for those who listen to the show, probably you're aware Mike Bonin has been one of very few reliable progressive votes on city council, which is dominated by more conservative voices in general. 
um, in a very personal thread uh, that he posted to Twitter, the council member spoke about his struggles with depression over the course of his life and how it has been increasingly difficult for him to deal with the rising tide of hate in his district. So we're talking about like anti-maskers. We're talking about uh, people who are really angry about uh, the poverty in the district, who want to see uh criminalization of the homelessness be uh, be returned to with even more force than it, generally speaking, has been over the course of this past several years. Um, this was a really big and shocking announcement. Jamie, Alyssa, I'd love to just hear your takeaways from what Bonin had to say to voters and Angelinos and, and what it means for us as a whole. I mean, I was, I was very um, surprised that this news broke, especially after um after the the recall signature effort failed i i mean reading through his i i do like applaud him for being so kind of candid in that thread i don't know if that's that's something that's like hard for anyone to do much less uh an elected official facing a ton of vitriol all the time um and i had to stop reading the you know nimby quote tweets um on that particular thread but i i mean it's I, I mean, I, I feel like it's like we've lost an important advocate. Uh, and I know that there's certainly been like criticism of, of Bonin over the years, but I um, I don't know. I, I mean, particularly in that district where it's like so clear that people need an advocate. Um, I, 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 I was really, I, I, I'm sad. I'm also concerned um, of who is going to, fill that void in a city council environment that seems like it's increasingly hostile to progressives and to people who are going to advocate um, for the unhoused in particular. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I was, um, I'm still kind of shocked and really curious what, what you both think, because my reaction was, I mean, in terms of um, his speaking on his mental health, I mean, even if, one like didn't struggle with depression. I can't imagine the kind of pressure that that puts on a person of just being constantly flooded with um, with hate on your you know core beliefs. Um, and I, yeah, I I, I really I want to hope that a progressive will fill that space. But in that district, I mean, that's going to be so challenging. I don't know. I'm looking for a bright side. Does anyone have one? I think the bright spot for me, I also felt felt it like a, a gut punch, right? It was it was very surprising, um, and and I got very worried about the future of the city um, in general. Um, but I will say one the 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 amazing thing was looking at filtering out the the bad quote tweets and looking at the tremendous showing of support from so many people who are working so hard in the city, um, being supportive of him. And also, which I think like the, to your point about like what he's been through and, uh, we don't even, we don't even probably know, you know, 10% of it. Uh, there's probably so much more that he experienced. Um, we just saw what happened in public. Um, so, so who is, who is to, 
to say like, you know, his choice, I fully applaud like walking away from something and saying no when you know that it's going to destroy um, your own well-being. And I think that many leaders wouldn't. They would press on and, um, you know, create a situation that was a bad, bad one for their staff. And they would, you know, put people in bad positions. I think a lot of people would in their quest for power, just keep pressing on. And I, I applaud him for not doing that. And that's, I think that's a, a testament to his leadership and the way that he has has um, handled so many crises in his district. I do want to point out two things I thought were notable. One, this very, like you said, very um, reflective thread, very personal thread on Twitter. Only two council members responded to it publicly on Twitter, mm. um, Nithya Raman and Marquise Harris-Dawson. And there was nothing from the mayor, by the way, um, who you would think in a normal city would at least show some support for one of your council members that's obviously been through like a traumatic experience that you also never supported him on during the recall, many recall efforts that came through. Um, and then that some of the people who were both working on the recall and who have been the loudest uh, NIMBY voices used the mental health um, reasoning for him leaving to say that he's not well enough, quote unquote, to be in office and should resign. And for those ideas to be put out there by those people is absolutely disgusting. And we know that the, it's like a very small group of people who are very loud and have a lot of money that are, that have made the biggest noise um, that have, that have, that it sounds, it makes them sound louder. It amplifies their voices more than they should be. Um, but to, to put those ideas out there and just let them be amplified in that way, I found like that turned my stomach and I, I, I just couldn't even believe that's what I was seeing. And with no, no defense from fellow council members or anyone else just trying to even applaud him for what he did. I wish I was more surprised at that too. Just like, mm -hmm. I've never, there's, the the mask offness to that particular community it just like knows no depth but like to i don't i just don't like to put your name next to a thought like that and to spread an idea like that is just so dark i don't know it's it, it yeah i mean to like to actually just say not only does anyone who experiences mental health issues is excluded outright from um from basically engaging in the political process, but that none of the millions, hundreds of millions of people in, uh, in the country who have mental health uh, issues that they live with every day deserve representation by someone who has a lived experience with what they go through. I actually personally would say um, I would be a little bit more skeptical of somebody who does not have any sort of mental health issues in the climate that we live in. <laughs> like, I think that that's a little Especially bit more suspect in an elected in my office. Mind. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of, it was kind of like um, my, my initial reaction to, to Mike Bonin's announcement was beyond, I mean, at least beyond the initial shock and surprise and, and dismay was um, just like how hard it is to be an elected official if you are... I, I don't think it's impossible to be in politics if you are not just like sociopathically self-involved. But I think being sociopathically self-involved probably makes it a lot easier 
because <laughs> you just are not affected by um, the the sort of vitri- vitriol and um, and hate that you get from all corners. Well, in this case, from one very particular corner. Um, it's so it's so dismaying. I think that's that's the word that I keep coming back to. Um, I do wonder, you know, like. Uh, and and now, of course, we'll be kind of left to wonder. Mike Bonin, who had faced a previous recall that didn't really go very far, was very close to being up for um, in in an actually close to viable recall campaign this time around, and would have had to run the campaign to keep his current term and the campaign to be reelected almost simultaneously. That sounds like hell. Um, it really, truly does, and. I don't know. Do you, do you guys think that Mike Bonin would have been able to remain in office if he had actually stood for election? I I tend to think that he would have been reelected. Um, I know it would have been a challenging fight, but incumbency is a powerful tool, and um, and the fact that the recallers were not able to succeed kind of tells you that despite the loudness of that group. They were not a clear, um, you know. They they could not clearly boost a candidate over him. But there's a twist here because of what happened just days after Bonin said he wasn't going to run. Greg Good, who is a Garcetti loyalist, uh, appointee to the Public Works Commission, um, had been saying that he was looking at running for Bonin's seat in the weeks before the recall was decided, the recall campaign ended, and uh, supposedly has been seeking endorsements from other uh, elected officials in the city and filed his paperwork on Friday. We're recording this on Saturday. So I have a feeling that maybe that's why we're not hearing so much from certain people on council or the mayor to protect Bonin's seat because this was in the works to run someone slightly to the right center, sorry, of of Bonin <laughs> and an attempt to do kind of what you're saying, like, like break that incumbency uh, stronghold apart. And that's what I think actually happened. Oh, is that... that, that uh makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, not that I guess I would have expected much more than silence, but that does make sense. And even, I mean, even if he was able to win another term, which I'm inclined to agree with you, Scott, I think he he would have, but it, I mean, even just watching the ins and outs of how, and, and what Bonin said himself in, in that, in the thread about just like the psychic stress of constantly being under recall and the amount of attention and energy that that diverts from doing your job, which is made difficult enough, even if you're not constantly, uh, you know, being attempted to be displaced from that job. Um, I just wonder, I mean, I, I just wonder how much it's possible to get done when that is a burden that you're facing every single day of just the same you know, mob outside your door telling you to um, fuck off. I couldn't think of a more elegant phrase. That's that sums it up. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it is 
exactly what they are saying to him. So we don't need to come up with a, a more clever phrase on their behalf. Um, and they, they're like, they're using it's this as an opportunity to, um, to claim victory um, and in the LA Times and certainly online as well. Um, and, and that seems like, I don't know. I, I, I think it's I think it's much more so than a victory for uh, for the recallers who do include a lot of very conservative voices. Voices. Um, I think that if what you're saying, Alyssa, proves to be the case uh, about former Garcetti appointee Greg Good, um, this reads as actually not even the first, but yet another way in which city council is wielding their power and the mayor are wielding their power to try to punish dissidents, basically, um, dissenters oh, yeah. from council unanimity. I mean, the the way that uh, new council member Nithya Raman was punished in the redistricting effort, uh, basically just for being elected, not even really for... It was kind of like um, the opposite of... Barack Obama's Nobel Peace Prize. It was literally just like because she was there, <laughs> they punished her. Um, like now we have uh, Mike Bonin, it seems like being targeted. And that doesn't surprise me because Mike Bonin was actually the most, far more than uh, Council Member Rahman, the most vociferous person on council when it came to breaking that sort of spell of unanimity and spoke out really eloquently about issues around homelessness, um, kind of cast himself as the exact type of person who was being targeted by punitive actions that the council was taking. They took those actions anyway, of course. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, in behind their silence, they're actually potentially working to um, to to try and remove him as an obstacle and and so it's um, that's something that it's I think important to know about this city council the lengths to which they'll go to um, to sort of preserve the ability to do whatever uh, they they deem right and proper without uh, having a dissenting voice to oppose them. Alyssa, there was also another big piece of political news that came out this week from our favorite mall developer. Uh, what what can you tell us about that? Is he our favorite one? I mean, if any mall developer was going to run, who would be your pick? Um, um, like <laughs> Chester, Chester Westerfield the third. <laughs> <laughs> Chester Westerfield. That's a good... Uh, someone needs to do a power ranking of... Uh, yeah, the mall, mall developers. developers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, speaking of people... I don't know, declaring or not declaring or, uh, you know, um, filing paperwork. Um, Rick Caruso, everyone, I mean, I could say he's he's definitely like our favorite um, billionaire, former police commissioner, uh, pseudo Republican is now a Democrat. <laughs> so wow. He, he I mean, I didn't know week. I had to pick a favorite one of those, <laughs> but I guess he, I guess he's the one. <laughs> He, he's I mean, the one. that takes a lot of boxes. <laughs> he he uh, has always been independent, but very, I don't know, this didn't take a whole lot of balls, but he was like, Trump will never come to my properties or something. And then he like 
right. said that the insurrection really like galvanized him. So he has taken small stands to show us that he is not a Republican um, in recent <laughs> years. And now Wait. he's filed as a Democrat. <laughs> Wait, I have so many questions. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not well versed in Caruso. So he so he said something akin to Donald Trump can't come to my mall Malls. like he's not invited yes. at Lids. Like yes. what is that? <laughs> when he was elected or something, he took this big stance of like, you know, he's not allowed to come here. He's not welcome, um, you know, uh, or to give speeches or what, you know, do any kind of campaigning or I don't know why he would go to those places but um yeah, he, it's, yeah it's, he took a very I mean, firm stand no donald God. trump at my auntie Anne's. what a brave <laughs> person <laughs> it's fun to imagine Don't him step in like... my american girl doll factory <laughs> oh my gosh that is because he's he's mr grove isn't he yes he's mr grove let's call him that instead oh. mr mr americana so he, i mean as the overlord of the american girl doll store that concerns me Yes. It, it should. Yeah. Like he's just like at the at the Grove, at the Americana. Well, he can't be at the Americana because that's in Glendale. So he has to spend all of his time at the Grove now. True. At the mm. there's a Palisades one too. There's one in the Palisades, remember? The Palisades right. Village. There's like a high end grove. Rick Caruso's actual like job, whatever he's been doing for the past um, couple of years is mostly centered around USC. And that's like been a major point of, and I hopefully will continue to be a major point of discussion as, um, as he, it seems like inevitably announces that he's running for mayor. Although, I mean, we should point out he's had a very uh, sort of like um, Bloomberg with the presidency, he's had a very long-term flirtation, or Donald Trump with the presidency even, a very uh, lengthy uh, flirtation <laughs> with the idea of running for mayor. Um, may I just say, maybe dream bigger, Rick Caruso. Caruso. I mean, mayor of LA is kind of small potatoes. Um, but uh, it does seem like this is probably the year that he runs. Um, and as the sort of head of the powerful board of trustees, not sort of head, he was the head of the powerful board of trustees at USC, he has been in place in the aftermath of some of that institution's most publicly uh, damaging scandals, including the admissions scandal, uh, the of course the the rape scandal in in USC gynecology, the um, the scandals at USC. Uh, School of Medicine, including the former Dean Carmen Poliafito. Those were mostly things that occurred prior to him taking over. Um, and he has been touting his role in helping to clean up the institution following that. However, the institution is, I, I would say, far from out of the woods. And I think that the uh, the Trojan family has had a lot of uh, not necessarily as a whole, but certainly members of the the Trojan uh, alumni community have had some concerns with his handling of that uh, aftermath of those scandals. So um, in particular, you know, he has allowed some of the uh, high level executives at USC, including former president uh, Max Nikias to retain emeritus honors after they left the organization. There have been um, 
of course, continued issues, particularly around the Greek life community at USC, which is now embroiled in another uh, another scandal around um, women's safety on campus and rape. So it's um, institutional change is difficult. However, what Caruso is, in my opinion, uh, solely basing his run on it should he run is he put out a Twitter thread to this effect, or sorry, a screenshot to this effect. Um, he's a notes app guy. Uh, he <laughs> very difficult uh, to read. <laughs> he he said um, that you know we shouldn't trust the LA City Council or existing politicians to solve issues because they've shown that they can't do it, and he has the track record that shows that he can solve issues like this. The city of LA is far more complicated and uh-huh. complex than USC, despite the size and complexity of that institution. So um, it's a big it's a big step up. Anyone have thoughts to share about Rick Caruso, our future billionaire overlord. He's hardly an outsider to try to paint himself as someone who like can get shit done when like he had all the influence and all the money and all and all the and and seats on these commissions and all these, you know, he has had all these roles um, in literally like shaping neighborhoods also. So, um, to to put pin a lot of this blame on you know who's been in power and like he's an outsider that's such bullshit like that's not an accurate d- depiction of of what has happened i just feel like if i can't even get a lunch reservation at the american girl restaurant he shouldn't be allowed to run for mayor <laughs> but even <laughs> which is i'm willing to publicly make that complaint but uh, i i do feel like I, I squinted at that uh, at that screenshot and quickly gave up. Um, I, again, a kind of a classic move for him to kind of take credit for all of the um, for USC as a whole, and it, it feels so typical of like, oh yeah, it was you know I was at the helm of all of these movements when that's demonstrably not true. He's taking credit for you know student activist work and and other activist work, and also it's very. Uh, up for discussion of how well those issues were actually handled because they were delayed in being handled at all until there was immense public pressure. I mean, it's, yeah, I, he's, he's absolutely not an outsider. He's Mr. Mall. Um, but I think it's interesting how he's, he's Mr. He's Mr. Outside he's like, Mall. He's, <laughs> It's it's true. He is an outsider as far as it comes to malls. So I guess I take everything I said back. Um, and what a great guy. I do. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it, it just I, I was curious of is there any particular reason why he would switch to the being a Democrat at this point? Is that is there any like only to. Yeah, I mean, he he wasn't like registered as a Republican. He was just an independent with, you know, those tendencies. But, um, you know, registering, I think, is uh, it's not like useful as far as our race, because our race is a nonpartisan race. You don't have to affiliate. And that's really silly. But I think he did it as a signal to let people know who were maybe on the fence, worrying that he was considering himself to be a right winger, that he is definitely a you know, blue through and through and people shouldn't be worried about voting for him. 
Okay. That's all, that's oh, my take. Bleak. And you can get money in fundraising. Not that he needs that though. It seems like the kind of thing that's exclusively meant to like when it shows up in newspapers to be able to say he's a registered Democrat. Because yeah, it won't show up on the ballot or anything. Um, I don't know. Okay, so the one thing we are hoping that Caruso will run on is double-decker trolleys on every major arterial traveling across the city at the service levels of 1920s streetcar service, right? I mean, that's one thing. I can get behind that for sure. And I'm sure that's what he will (laughs) be putting forth soon as his transportation plan. In the meantime... Until that happens. <laughs> I'll take to the streets for that. <laughs> I know, right? Um, until that happens, we still have Metro. And one of the huge bum- bummers about Bonin leaving is that he is a board member for Metro and has consistently pushed for uh, improved service, free transit, all these other um, uh, issues that we've been talking about over the last few years um, to really... Uh, give more power and support to our bus riders who are among the lowest income households in the city and rely on buses to keep the city functioning. Um, We talked a little bit about restoring. We had this big fare free uh, two-year period um, that's ended. We've started charging bus riders again. And now the board met this week and it was very disappointing to see that they are approving what they are calling temporary service cuts due to an ongoing operator shortage. Um, If you've taken the bus over the last few weeks, you've seen, if you use the transit app, it has these canceled trips. They're kind of grayed out on on the app. It shows that the bus run was never made. That's because there's such a large group of operators that are not only sick from the Omicron wave, but also um, people are not being hired, trained for these jobs because people are not applying for them because you are only making $17 an hour. And we've talked about this recently on the show. So now we have we are charging people again for service that is worse and this, the, the cuts are going to be temporary until when, Scott? I don't know. Like, did, was there, is there like a timetable now for when we um, might be able to see them coming back? Yeah, so Metro said, and I am extremely hesitant to even say this because there's not really any there's not really anything to suggest that they will keep their word, and they've been extremely, uh, I think, like extremely willing to um, to just lie to the public um, or mis- misrepresent what they're doing to the public. They seem to think that. Um, the public opinion is the thing that should be the first to go when it comes to transit service in LA, which um, which isn't surprising if you've rode buses here. Uh, but they have said that it is temporary. The board asked for Metro to look at ways that they could return to the previous level of service by June of this year. I will just say, I do not believe that that will happen. Um, I do not believe that they will even have a plan to restore service by June of this year, uh, let alone to be able to do it by that date. And this is a significant cut that they're making. I mean, Jamie, you've been riding the buses um, regularly. I, I've certainly been riding a lot less frequently during the pandemic. Have you noticed the like the operator callouts or the missed trips affecting your travel? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, I, I, and fortunately, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm 
I've gotten more plugged into Metro Twitter just to affirm that I'm not losing my mind. But I mean, it's like (laughs) (laughs) there's been there's been so many cases of, you know, like stops are moving around or they're they're skipped or they're missed or, you know, buses that are supposed to come never do. And that's always been the case for, I mean, every public transit system I've ever lived around. But it's it's certainly in the last couple of months, um, as I feel like usage, because I've been using the bus again pretty regularly for maybe the last six to eight months, and it's certainly gotten more crowded in the last couple of months. But I think that it's a lot of because there's less buses um, and um, and and less service in general, which which I mean, as as kind of everyone can imagine, uh, sucks most for the uh, operators of the bus who are just uh, verbally abused to no end, even though it's not uh, their fault. And also it it clearly mm-hmm. affects people. I mean, I I generally take the 603, which goes to, um, you know, Caruso land. It goes to the mm-hmm. mall. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> mall employees that I'm on the bus with that are constantly, I mean, like missing the beginning of their shift because buses won't show up and just yeah. the uh, the the effect that it has is has seemed more pronounced in the last couple um in the last couple months and that's the 603 report from me (laughs) (laughs) which already has very long headways sometimes so you yeah talking about maybe waiting an hour for a bus well i mean absolutely the the situation and um it, it is can be radically different depending on what part of town you live in because of the way that this is happening um, so basically, we talked about and um, and now I uh, I'm filled with regret that we um, that we gave so much air and I gave so many hours of my life to writing about the next gen service changes um, because they seem to have been completely a sham to me now um, that they. Uh, we're, we're promoting that they're moving service to lines that were more heavily traveled by riders, um, improving service all over. Basically, what they're saying now is that due to the operator shortage, they've never even come close to offering what they reaped all of this positive publicity for announcing they've never they've never done next gen. They've never done what they told riders that they were going to do instead. Um, they've been having um, the the uh, coverage depend variously uh, depending on what part of your of the city and county you're in, based on basically whether or not they can find drivers to take those shifts. And so, in certain parts of um, in certain parts of town, what I'm hearing, particularly in South Los Angeles, where poverty is most heavily concentrated. And therefore, where uh, transit ridership is much higher than average for the county of Los Angeles, um, the operator callouts have been most extreme because uh, operators are refusing to take those shifts. Basically, I mean, I don't, I don't think that they can actually refuse them, um, but they're just like you know not answering their phone, they're not showing up, or whatever. That's what I'm hearing, um, and uh, and I think that what that means is this is a. I think, you know, we should talk about it in in real terms. This is, as Jamie said, a tax that is being levied against the poorest Angelinos, like the the wage workers, the people who are going to retail jobs, 
um, and what have you. Like, there, there's not a way to contextualize this where it's not directly punishing people who need transit to get to their jobs and um, Metro's inability to run service on a reliable basis. And now saying um, we've tried everything, we're going to cut service in order so that you can actually rely on the timetable. We're we're not going to try to get more operators. Um, we're just going to, well, they, they say they're trying to hire more operators and it's not working. Um, in reality, like Alyssa said, they're barely paying more than minimum wage for, I'll say again, what is one of the most dangerous jobs, if not the most dangerous job in America, being a transit operator. They face assaults more than police officers. Um, they are extremely at risk at, at, during the course of their duties and we're paying them nothing. So they're not really trying. And now they're saying they need to cut service in order to make it something that riders can rely on. But um, but this is, it's it's a bad situation for riders. Metro has had high profile attacks on people waiting for the bus recently. Um, this doesn't help that, you know, like I, I just, um, I, I, I think that, People are scared to go on the system right now. Uh, and the ones that are doing so are doing so out of absolute necessity. And that's um, that's exactly the opposite of what Metro promised us as Angelinos, frank frankly. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, Jamie, do you want to do you want to talk to us about the street vendor protests in Santa Monica? Yes. Um, so this is uh, kind of an area that I've been uh, more focused on recently because I'm uh, working on a project that's uh, basically, it's a history of the hot dog. Um, but as it pertains to the city of LA, I, I've been doing a lot of research on um, the best hot dogs in the city, which are uh, sold by street vendors. Um, and so there was a uh, protest this past Friday in Santa Monica uh, by about a, a, a couple dozen street vendors um, they protested on the steps of Santa Monica City Hall um, and their argument, which has, you know, a huge precedent if it and what I know has been discussed on this show many times about um, about racial profile profiling and being targeted um, by the LAPD and by the city um, for just attempting to operate their businesses. It kind of remains unclear of what effect this protest is going to have um, other than kind of raising awareness if it'll be anything ongoing. But um, it's happening in Santa Monica in particular right now um, and, and always has been. But um, there's only, um, you know, it, vendor food is very popular uh, on the Santa Monica Pier, but it is constantly being, um, they're constantly being um, shut down. They're constantly being displaced. And I, I think it's, um, there. there's a few vendors in particular at this protest who were sharing their personal experiences that are very recent of uh, being arrested, of being harassed by, um, by police officers um, and being kind of um, targeted under the guise of, and this is something pretty insidious that we were seeing over the summer in MacArthur Park as well with street vendors, uh, on the guise of, well, your, you know, your cart isn't up to code, so it's unsafe on the basis of COVID protocols, um, which if you're just, you know, casually encountering that story might sound like a reasonable thing to say, but um, I think what 
they're experiencing in Santa Monica on top of being harassed and displaced are being constantly dogged by these um, by these fees, by these needs for licenses and is kind of demonstrative of what's been going on for almost, I can't, like 10 years now um, in terms of street vending being technically legal, but in practice um, is still targeting and harassing um, you know, marginalized street vendors who are creating the food culture in LA and then having it kind of taken by gentrified brick and mortars and they're kind of, you know, left to be harassed and displaced. So I, I was pleasantly encouraged to see that there was some organizing going on in Santa Monica and that there are um, protests that I, I, I'm curious if they'll be ongoing or not. Um, but I hope it kind of brings attention back to the issue of, of street vendors because there, there seemed to be kind of that, um, there was some discussion when there was just, I mean, food taken from street vendors out of nowhere in the middle of a food festival in MacArthur Park over the summer. And then that discussion sort of seemed to take a dip. So curious to see where it goes. I like... Yeah, you mentioned the... Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alyssa. <laughs> no, I you mentioned you mentioned some of the regulations with the carts. That's been something that at least here in LA County, um, they've uh, the health department and the city are really making a, a small effort to try to help uh, with these proposed cart designs. They released um, uh, one version of of a tamalero cart, which was like very adorable, <laughs> um, which <laughs> does fit all the, um, there's an amazing story on LA Taco about it. You can read about how, how they, it was developed and um, it was really an amazing a design, amazing design story. Um, but you can talk about, you can you can look at like, the process they went to just to make it quote unquote legal, the first version they came back with where they were like, this is basically like building a car. If you want us to do all that, like as a size and weight of a, a vehicle um, that you'd have to put to make sure that all the health rules were for, fulfilled because they're just absolutely ridiculous. So something else that happened this week that was really exciting was this new coalition, Cal, uh, California Street Vendors, which is just CA Street Vendors on Twitter. You can find them and support them. This, a lot of these changes have to actually come from the food code that's set at the state level. There are all these retail codes about how you can serve fresh food and prepare it. And so all those things actually need to change at the state level. So you're looking at like, like you said, city of Santa Monica, just being a dick in some cases, probably um, to <laughs> these vendors. And then you have the county health department and then you have the state uh, retail food code that we still have to deal with. So there's just web upon web of these regulations for people who just, like you said, are contributing so much to going to the beach, a day at the beach, right? It's so, yeah. And and I was, I mean, in, in LA County specifically, I mean, looking at the amount of income that, I mean, just to even get your cart up to code with constantly changing codes can be so expensive and, and really like cut into your profits, especially, you know, at the height of COVID when street vendors were not doing as much business. And then having this, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to have safety procedures that have safety codes, obviously, but there's just like no help and no systems in place to get street vendors there. So it's just repeatedly setting them up 
for failure um, and like uh, continued targeting, which uh, just let the people right. have hot dogs. Right. It's just like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean, I, I do feel like the, the comparison to MacArthur Park is a really good one. And we saw... We saw a lot of um, cracking down on street vendors throughout the pandemic at a time when the city was bending over backward to make it easier for restaurants to serve food, even indoors, even when it was known that that was substantially more likely to cause or facilitate COVID transmission than, um, than, you know, like a momentary transaction with an outdoor street vendor ever could. And I think it really does just... Um, it continues to just break down along class lines and race lines, and um, and there's a an element of um, of LA culture which is um, which is so radically contributed to by street vendors um, and by this um, street culture of of having this sort of open commerce that has always kind of been a thorn in the side of local leaders and was a reason why the city of Los Angeles was the largest city without um, without any way for street vendors to to operate legally for the longest time. Now they have a permitting system. Um, but like Alyssa, like you were mentioning as well, there's sort of this patchwork of regulations. And Jamie, like you said, like we can have this, we can have a um, we can have a safety code. And a way to do this that doesn't make it so that, for example, like if I'm walking down the strand between Santa Monica and Venice, like I go from being legal to illegal in, in the course of like, you know, a five minute right. or 15 minute walk. <laughs> like it's just ridiculous. Right. Um, that doesn't make sense. And it wouldn't, it, I don't think that that expectation would be put upon any group of um, any group of people participating in business if they were not more likely to be, you know, low income brown folks. But that's typically what we see. And this is, I mean, this is probably stating the obvious and I promise to not keep rambling about hot dogs. But as I was um, going through, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me how many in the past um, 10 to 15 years, how many um, you know, like gentrified uh, brick and mortar hot dog locations have opened up in LA, some of which serve, you know, a pretty good hot dog. But each and every one of them, if you look into their history, credit LA street vendors as their inspiration of why I wanted to, my, you know, my hot dog story or whatever the mm -hmm. fuck. But, but, but everyone, I mean, all of these, you know, in, in, majority white, majority upwardly mobile class-wise, um, you know, bougie hot dog business owners credit vendors who do not have the same rights and access to sell a better product for less money. And it's just, it's, um, it's infuriating. Um, especially when those same business owners are not, you know, I, I what I wish that we saw were more uh, restaurant owners who are willing to stand with the street vendors who they claim are, you know, right. inspiring their own overpriced product very nearby. But you you don't really see a lot of that. I feel like, you know, you see um, Roy Choi has always been uh, amazing with that because he was, uh, you know, did operate as a, a food truck for so long and like was, you know, intimately involved in the late 2000s and the taco truck wars and all 
all that kind of fascinating, bizarre history. But there are very few um, high up restaurant owners that are willing to stand with the um, the people who are making the food that they're basically <laughs> stealing and rebranding as their own. So I feel like there's, you know, there's a lot of different like the obviously the the codes um, that street vendors are being kind of punished by and and not given access to is a huge discussion. But I feel like there's also it seems like and this is I'm not an expert, but at least in the the corner of hot dog world that I do understand, um, <laughs> there is a lack of um, solidarity and, and a lot of empty talk in terms of, well, we, we love and support our L.A. street vendors. It's like, well, where are you when they're being harassed? Um, and right. so, yeah. So those those vendors are working to get the state laws changed. And, and we definitely encourage that there is uh, I think their main goal is making it easier to get legal as a vendor and stay legal as opposed to the current system where it's um, uh, they're, they're just like subject to whatever uh, whatever the whims are basically of the current political environment. So, um, you know, support them in that effort, definitely. And uh, we'll follow up with this story as it goes. Um, and we do want to end, as we promised you, on uh, something of a bright spot for the city of Los Angeles, which is following the lead of other local governments in announcing, actually voting unanimously this past week on a uh, study to phase out actually an immediate ban on new oil drilling in the city of Los Angeles and a study to phase out existing oil drilling. This has been something that activists, including Stand LA, have been after for uh, decades, if not longer, because Los Angeles operates the largest in the nation, maybe largest in the world, urban oil field. Um, this is a major part of Los Angeles's history, is drilling for oil, and, um, and it has continued to be a smaller part of the economy of the region ever since the uh, middle part of the 20th century. So we have lots of residential neighborhoods that exist in close proximity to um, oil wells. I actually am still kind of shocked that it was possible um, and and uh, up until this year, up until 2022, to announced that you were going to start a new oil well in Los Angeles. I'm not entirely sure how frequently that was happening, but um, but the city council has now just taken action to uh, eliminate that possibility. They are looking at um, more significant steps to um, address the handling of abandoned oil wells. And they say over the course of the next two decades that they want to end the practice entirely uh, responses to this. I, I, it's sort of, it is, a, it is definitely a silver lining, I think, but it's sort of a mixed bag. Alyssa, Jamie, do you have, do you have thoughts on, on the end of oil drilling in LA? First of all, just a huge, uh, congratulations to Stand LA and their coalition. They have been working on this for so long, which like you said, seemed like a very basic ask that might have been introduced when the city, say, adopted their Green New Deal that might have been passed that same year. Um, just little simple things that, that you might want to ask of a, of a city that says it's, it wants to eliminate 
uh, the use of fossil fuels uh, within its own borders to not extract those fossil fuels. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of questions now about how this is going to happen um, and and the speed at which it, speed or slowness <laughs> at, at, with, at which it will happen. Um, because what you're basically having to do now is negotiate with the oil companies and... Um, you know, there'll be studies and there'll be all these different evaluations. Politicians and, are good at that, right? They're good at negotiating with oh the my oil gosh, lobby. Be, well, they're already <laughs> such good friends. They're already so close to them. So maybe this will be what they say. Thank goodness that we took all that fossil fuel money because now we know these people really well and we can make these deals because we call them all the time. So it's going to be, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, their claim is that, you know, we made this investment, we own this well, and you can't take this away from us because this is how we make money. Because you know how fossil fuel companies have no money, so we should feel bad for them. I'm crying right now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think this is like a, an incredible win um, for Stand LA. And I'm just, I'm, uh, I, I'm so happy that something nice happened and that and just like the, the length of this fight is so um discouraging but also you know i i'm i'm mainly i'm i'm bringing the mood back down because i'm like well when when are these actually when is this actually going to go into um into play and how long is this going to take for us to actually see the effects but i'm excited for the initial win yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's definitely a, uh, a big win. I'm glad that we can sort of start to think about a post-oil future in Los Angeles now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always like, why is everything two decades? What? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, twenty I years. We famously didn't like have two decades to resolve yeah. this problem. I, no, that, we that, definitely don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it blows my mind that everything is, is still two decades. Um, it, it's amazing to me that we hadn't already sort of done a, a study on on this or or but that is a big part of the reason why um, you know this is this is such a big victory for that coalition that has been pushing on this forever and has not given up on um, on you know what they're calling the sacrifice communities that exist within, a very short uh, distance from the location of active oil drilling sites. These are all over Los Angeles. And I think people probably don't realize that, but it's in, it, there's probably a former oil uh, well in close proximity to where you live, honestly, if you're in the city of Los Angeles. They're, they're everywhere. Um, and the active ones are primarily located near uh, communities that are much more likely to um, to have families living in poverty and families that are um, non-white and the, you know the, the sort of working class fabric of Los Angeles is is existing very close to um, the 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 oil boundary zone where negative health impacts can include things like an increased risk of, preterm birth or uh, or even, you know, things like asthma and cancer. So like these are life altering consequences um, that are potentially going to be suffered by people based on political decisions made by the city. Um, obviously, it does sound like as soon as there's any sort of real action on stopping 
um, uh, on stopping oil drilling. This is something where the oil lobby is not going to stand pat. Clearly, they're going to to sue, and there's going to be a major. I think we can expect a major public disinformation campaign because that is um, sort of just like the nature of these things. One of the arguments that was made in the LA Times about closing local oil drilling sites is um, is that it is you know it's like one of those. Uh, what do they call? What do the neocons call it? It's like oil independence or whatever. Like basically, like oh, this frees us from dependence on right. the petrol states. And- you have these. You have these groups, and the guy's name is amazing. Rock Zierman, CEO yep. of no. California Independent Petroleum Association. That's a Channing Tatum character. That's <laughs> <laughs> Their argument, right? And this is so sneaky, especially with the conversations we've been having about like supply chain. But like, yeah, it it sets us up for this situation where we're more dependent on foreign oil that will have to come through our crowded port. And you know how much you don't want more ships coming into your port, right, guys? Okay, well, first of all, um, <laughs> rock. <laughs> We could turn that off too. We're going to work on that next. We're not going to have any oil coming through the port. But this is just like, it is, it's always their argument. But the city, to its credit, even with our broken um, water and power uh, department, has taken great strides to move us towards more renewable energy sources. And uh, we are doing better at that. Um, than than many cities, and uh, so that is possible too. But there, it's it's no it's not a good excuse for you know not extracting our own oil within our borders, which is absolutely um, it should stop tomorrow. Is is it like if you're if you want to be an oil lobbyist, you have like a porn name, like you have to like make something up that sounds like you belong <laughs> in the oil lobby, oh, like Rex like, Rex Tillerson, Rex Remember Tillerson. Famously, I mean, another good villain name. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we have uh, oil lobbyist crude Derrickman, and he wants us to know. (laughs) Um, He wants us to know. You feel like you're piling out of the mystery machine to get mad. Um, yeah, he wants us to know that um, that tankers coming to our port are a major source of pollution, which is absolutely true. And we've seen that this year be uh, a cause for tremendously um, terrible air days throughout the Southern California region, but especially along the 710 corridor, which is another environmental justice community. Um, suffering from the impacts of the oil industry. Thank you, Crude, for that reminder. We should keep this uh, at the forefront of our mind and the city should do more. The city operates the Port of LA um, and, you know, despite this sort of like talking out of both sides of their mouth, which is what lobbyists are for, um, that they intend for what the LA Times uh, has a source in there that calls it a sacrifice zone, right? They're saying that the cost of of energy independence, that's another neocon thing, freedom isn't free, right? So like um, the cost of energy indep- independence is that you just sort of have to sacrifice some communities where uh, black and brown families live. And that that's, you know, 
uh, this is the way that grown-ups deal with problems, right? Is we just sort of pick which families are going to get asthma and have children who are born preterm and um, and sorry, but that's America. Um, I think that his point should be taken at face value and we should say like there's uh, there are costs to the way that the port currently operates and that the air quality board, which is um, currently not very active on this front, should look very uh, closely at what it means for us to um, have the current volume of oil imported in through LA's port, let alone potentially an increased amount to offset closing down local LA fields. That should just be a non-starter. Um, so thank you to Rock. We agree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Being an ally, Rock. Thank you, Rock. Uh, we we really appreciate your work on this issue. And, um, and shout out to, of course, genuinely Stand LA and everyone who has spoken up about ending oil drilling in Los Angeles. I think that does it for us this week. We've had uh, a lot of fun talking to you, Jamie Loftus. Jamie, I hope that you come back on this show often because we love having you here. Um, and oh, thank you. Time. Thank you for having me. Of course. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Alyssa, I hope you have a good rest of your morning. I actually am going to get some real coffee once we can once we conclude I'm going to go this. eat some hot dogs. I'm in the mood for hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. More, um, nothing like a morning dog, baby. Morning, morning dogs. <laughs> Breakfast of champions. Uh, and one more plug for our... Patreon subscription program, the Sepulveda Pass. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's thelapod.com. Click the support us link. We also have a newsletter, thelapod.com slash newsletter. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thank you. Bye.